are rolling. Kevin, how you doing today, brother? Whew, doing good, man. We have so much material to cover, and we couldn't even have done it. We couldn't even cover a little bit in one of our episodes because there was so much to it. So we're, we were hoping this would be, what, like six or seven episodes, and it may end up being a 200-episode series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. <laughs> it's that exhaustive. We are covering that much. Nah, man, it, it's, I've really enjoyed this. It's really been nice revisiting a lot of this and looking at it in detail again and revisiting some of those old sources. We've gotten a lot of good feedback. I have a lot of good friends of mine that have listened to this. They've been blessed by it. They've enjoyed it. To all of you listeners, thank you all so much. I mean, Kevin and I seriously can't thank you all enough. We're floored by the response that we're getting, the good feedback that we've received. So thank you all. You know, Share this with your friends. Share it with your neighbors. Talk about it at church. Join our Facebook group. We just, we love being, just being, having such an audience and being able to do this and the good that it's doing for so many people. It, it really blows me away. Yeah. And, and I'm thankful that we can be a part of it. And we want God to use us, and we hope that this is something that you're being blessed by, and we hope to always truly be fair. We all never want to come across as being too antagonistic. I mean, sometimes when you make a point, it's going to come across antagonistic no matter how you say it, but yeah. our, our intent is not to just say, booyah, we got you. This is a matter of, of truly trying to dig into the Word, to look at some different understandings, and especially from what we were taught and what I used to teach others and how we both changed our minds on that. And so, uh, Lee, if you will, just kind of recap a little bit from the last episode where we talked about the historical context in which Jesus taught in. Well, our intention in the last episode was to get into Jesus's historical context on his teachings of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and then get into who the guilty party was. And as we continued onward with that historical context, we saw that we were fast approaching the one hour mark. And with our, not this last episode, but the episode before that was almost two hours long. We were like, man, we got to do something to shorten it. So we decided to go ahead and stop there. And what we see in the historical context is that marriage um, was something that had become um, more or less a commodity in that time as evidenced by the rates of divorce that existed. Divorce was extremely prevalent. It was super common in that day and age. And that had largely to do with the attitudes toward divorce and how the interpretation of divorce had changed according to the law of Moses. There were different schools of thought related to divorce and what constituted a valid reason to divorce. And the two schools of thought were the schools of Hillel and the schools of Shammai. These were two rabbis that had um, protégés that taught under them. These were the people that would rule on different legal matters that would arise. They would adjudicate different things, um, different conflicts, and help resolve those conflicts under the color of the law of Moses. And the school of Shammai said that the cause of indecency in Deuteronomy 24 was related to something that was an extreme cause of indecency, something like adultery, something like premarital sex, something like, you know, a cause of uncleanness, something that was a big deal, legal uncleanness. The school of Hillel had interpreted that to be any cause. Any cause of uncleanness, any cause at all is what they took it to mean. And so most people in that day and age would see that day and age would seek out a divorce under the auspices of a Hillelite divorce because they didn't have to prove adultery. They didn't have to prove neglect. They didn't have to prove anything. 
They could just go and file for divorce for any reason whatsoever. We see evidence of that in Mary and Joseph. We see evidence of that in anthropology. We see evidence of that in archaeology. And then we come to Jesus. Jesus, before he gives his uh, sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, one of the common things that we talked about is that Jesus was not teaching new law. And we know he wasn't teaching new law because of what the Bible says in Matthew 5 and 17. Jesus was clarifying Jewish law. He was clarifying the law of Moses, and he was reorienting the people that would listen there, that asked him that question, back to what the law originally taught. So Jesus goes through his antithesis. He talks about how if you have hatred in your heart, that's akin to murder. If you have lust in your heart, that's akin to adultery. He gets into all of these different teachings, these antithetical statements in his Sermon on the Mount, demonstrating the spirit of the law or the intent of the law and how it relates to the execution of the law. Jesus lived and died under the Jewish law. He properly taught it. He was teaching this reorientation, and we know that that's the case. We know that he wasn't teaching new law because the scribes and the Pharisees that were there didn't rise up against him and accuse him of blasphemy. So we know that that's the case. So with that in mind, we can now get into who Jesus declares is guilty in this matter, because that's that's really what we're wanting to get into in, in this episode. So this episode, we are going to discuss the guilty, as you just said, Lee, and Next episode, we're going to be looking at the innocent as far as Jesus is concerned. So you have Jesus teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage on two separate occasions. And I'm not going to read all of these simply because if you're listening to this, I hope to shout you've already read what Jesus said about it. If not, then I'll give you those verses so you can go and read. It's Matthew 5, 31 and 32. This was the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was teaching to his disciples. And then also the second occurrence when Jesus teaches on marriage, divorce, remarriage is when he is being tested by the scribes and Pharisees. And this is in Matthew 19, 1 through 12, Mark 10, 1 through 12, and Luke 16, 18. All of those scholars believe are referencing the exact same situation. Either way, what you have are four different verses or four different contexts, if you will, as far as the the books in which they're written, but they're the same context because Jesus is not teaching different things. So these are, this is what Matthew records Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's what Matthew records Jesus when he talked about marriage, divorce, and remarriage to the scribes and Pharisees, what Mark, uh, what Mark records when he's talking to when Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and then also Luke, what he is, what Jesus uh, is talking about when it's this, the marriage, divorce, remarriage to the scribes and Pharisees. So either way, what we what we know for a fact is that if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he's not going to be teaching contradictory things. So whatever he is saying, he's saying the same thing. He may say it differently. He may not be as exhaustive in one instance or one context as he is in another. I'm sorry, not even in the same is the same context, but Luke may not record as much as Matthew or or Mark, but or and vice versa. But what we know is that Jesus is not going to contradict himself. So, in summary, my belief is that Jesus is teaching against two groups of people, or the sins of two groups of classifications of people here. The first one is Jesus is condemning the sins and teaching against those who were divorcing their spouses unlawfully. That's the first group. Those who were taking their marriage vows without any reason whatsoever, and they were divorcing their spouses, and they were breaking their covenants. And Matthew 19, 3 through 6, they even asked Jesus, can a man divorce 
his wife for just any reason. Now, Lee, why is that any reason a flag word? Why is that a flag phrase? That is a flag phrase because it is the exact same language that was used in the School of Hillel's interpretation of the any cause divorce. It's the same language that would be used on a divorce certificate. It's the same language that would be used in the Hillelite courts. It's the exact same language that has been uncovered archaeologically, according to uh, William Luck, according to David Stone Brewer, according to all of these scholars and anthropologists that have studied this. It is the same phrase. It's the same language that would be used. So whenever you see that, that that should immediately denote in your mind that there's likely a link there. Is it possible that there isn't a link there? I suppose that's possible, but it doesn't seem that probable to me whenever we consider all of that we discussed in the last episode about the first century context of divorce and what it was found in. And that Hillelite divorce use this word any reason. And the simple answer to that question, can a man divorce his wife for just any reason? Jesus basically says no, but he elaborates on that. He doesn't answer their question immediately. He goes all the way back to creation to and to begin his answer to their question. Yeah, he goes all the way back and he says, look, this has never been the ideal. This has never been the way it's supposed to. And he says in Matthew 19, 6, whatever God, uh, God has joined together, let not man separate, which by the way, same word for divorce. And it's the, the same Greek word that we see in first Corinthians seven and, and Matthew chapter one. So what Jesus is saying is that when God joins a husband and wife together in marriage, they're not to divorce. No, the answer is no. You're wanting to know, can you just divorce your spouse for any reason you want to? And the answer is absolutely not. In fact, not only is the answer no to your question, the answer is divorce was never even part of my plan to begin with before sin entered the world. And so they they asked the question, well, then why did Moses allow in, in Matthew, and would you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or I'm sorry, just Matthew and Mark, it's why did Matt, why did Moses allow or why did Moses command divorce? And it's yeah, interesting. That's a bit important word, that command. Yes. And it's interesting to note that Moses never commanded divorce in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. What Moses commanded and what God commanded through Moses because of their hardness of hearts was not divorce. It was the divorce certificate. That is what was commanded in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And so when we read that, we need to understand it was never commanded in Deuteronomy 24 to divorce. That was not the point of the law. The point was when you do divorce, I am commanding you to give your wife your former wife now, a certificate of divorce to be able to protect her and allow her to marry someone else. And so the command was not divorce. The command was the divorce certificate. And I want to talk about the idea too, Lee, about how man should not separate what God has joined together. There's this idea called the indissolvability of marriage. The idea is that marriage cannot be dissolved and that whatever God has joined together, man cannot separate but what we see in Matthew 19, 6 is that the Bible doesn't say man cannot separate what God has joined together, but that man within this context should not separate for just any reason. And why is that important to understand the difference between 
the idea that a marriage cannot be dissolved versus the idea the marriage should not be dissolved. Well, because it it's a, it's an extremely important distinction because the difference between the words can and should are incredibly what's the word I'm looking for pertinent to this discussion. If you cannot separate then that necessarily means that all divorce is impossible. It's something that simply can't be done. And we know the fact that it was codified within the law of Moses. We know that because people have married and divorced forever, it's simply not the case. It is possible, but it's not something that should be done. And it's similar to some of the same lines of reasoning that people use in John 3 and 16. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. I mean, how many times have you heard that quoted and people say, whoever believes in him will not perish or cannot perish? No, it says should not perish. There's a big difference between those two things. And the idea that's so often misrepresented is this idea that, well, what God has joined together, man can't separate. So you're still married in God's eyes. And if you take another position, well, you're just wanting to justify a divorce. You're just wanting to let everybody just get married and divorce, you know, for whatever reason, all willy nilly. Marriage doesn't mean anything to you at all. And it's like, no, nothing can be further from the truth. I mean, that's an accusation that I've heard made against brethren who take a more nuanced perspective on this for people like you and I who have arrived at a different understanding than the typical traditional view within the churches of Christ. Oh, well, you just think marriage is just this thing that you can just do whatever you want. You can just divorce for any reason. No, not at all. Marriage is incredibly important. Marriage is one of the biggest, most important decisions, if not the most important natural decision you'll ever make in your life. It is not something that needs to be decided flippantly. And I don't think you make light of marriage. You don't minimize its importance. I don't minimize its importance. I mean, as someone who has been in a bad marriage and someone who is now in a good marriage, I think you would agree with that assessment. Marriage is incredibly important. Neither one of us are making that case. But oftentimes this perspective is misrepresented. It's misrepresented as people who are flipping about marriage and who just don't care about it when nothing could be further from the truth. When you look at what you just said, the accusation that, well, marriage must not be important, and we're going to get more into those types of accusations, that is actually why I I changed because I realized how important marriage actually is and what marriage, what constitutes marriage and what the marriage is supposed to look like. And when we studied passages like Exodus 21 and saw that if, if needs could not be met, if there was a neglect, then God saw that that was not a marriage and that the man was to let his wife go free to marry another. So I realized the importance of marriage. And sometimes what people do is they look at marriage only for, only from the perspective of, well, this is just something that you said I do, and therefore, no matter what happens, this is something you stick to, and it doesn't matter if you're being abused, it doesn't matter, all these other things don't matter, because this is what Jesus said. And that view is, is in my opinion, as we're going to see later, is not only unbiblical, but it is dangerous and it is demonic. Yeah. It is actually a demonic view. Paul actually does address that idea in First Timothy 4. So here's going back to Matthew 19. The idea is they were wondering, could we divorce for any reason? And Jesus says, no, the ideal and the reason I created marriage was not for it to be broken, but for it to stay together. And whatever I have joined together, man should not be out separating for any reason. They shouldn't be doing it. And why did, I, why did I just add for any reason? Because that's what they asked. Jesus is answering their question. 
And when they said, well, then why then did Moses give us a certificate of divorce? Jesus said he didn't. He, because of the hardness of your hearts, commanded a divorce certificate to be given for the woman to protect the woman from your hard hearts. And that is such an important point to understand that the command was not the divorce. The command was to give your wife a certificate when you did divorce. And by the way, divorce for any reason had always been possible under Jewish law, but it had never been permissible. It had yeah. never been permissible it under Jewish possible, law. But it wasn't. Yeah, Malachi 2.16. Malachi 2.16 condemns this idea of divorce for just any reason without having a lawful, just reason. And if, if right now, if you don't believe there's any reason, we'll get to that later too. But the point is, is that we agree. Jesus was saying, you cannot divorce for just any reason and then turn around and say, I'm okay. I'm righteous. No, that has never been right under Jewish law. It wasn't right in Malachi's time when Malachi condemned it. It wasn't right when the law in Deuteronomy 24 went forth to protect the hard-hearted men, or to, excuse me, to protect the women from their hard-hearted husbands. And it wasn't right in the first century. Never had been, and it wasn't. And by the way, the Jews did not debate Jesus on this, not even the scribes and Pharisees, because they knew they were not properly applying the law. They were taking advantage of the law. They were they were saying this is not correct. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute now. Hillel, though, didn't he teach divorce for any reason? Was it, wouldn't that be Jesus contradicting the Jewish law? No, that would be contra Jesus contradicting Hillel, not the Jewish law. Hillel was wrong in his understanding of the Jewish law. That's what Jesus was correcting. By the way, Jesus being a rabbi had just as much reason to interpret Deuteronomy 24 from the Jewish perspective as did Hillel and his followers. And so Jesus isn't saying... I'm contradicting the law and teaching differently. He's saying, I'm teaching against what Hillel said, and it's never been right. And if you look at yourself, honestly, you'll see you've not been treating your wives properly. And thus, what you're doing has never been right under Jewish law, and it's not right right now. And so that is such an important, important, important part to understand what Jesus is actually talking about. The hard-heartedness is not everybody. Not all divorce, not all people who divorced did it did so because they had a hard heart. And we saw this in a couple of episodes where we talked about reasons for divorce under the Jewish law. Divorce is seen in the Bible sometimes as an act of mercy when fundamental needs couldn't be met. It was a cleansing at times from non-believers when when they were influenced. Uh, when they were, when the believers were being influenced by the non-believers, it became the primary discipline against adulterous wives instead of the death penalty. As I said before, Joseph was considered a just man, not a hard-hearted man. And so, unless we're willing to say that Moses was hard-hearted, God was hard-hearted, um, that that Joseph was hard-hearted, and say that that all of these people who ever divorced were hard-hearted then we have to realize Jesus isn't speaking about all divorce here. He's speaking about the same type of divorce we see in Malachi, which was that sinful, treacherous divorce. And so my question is, if God himself is seen as divorcing, why would God then turn around and say, only people who have hard hearts would divorce? And if Joseph was considered a just man in the Bible, why would we come to the conclusion, jo Joseph must be a hard-hearted man? It's We would only come to those conclusions if we have preconceived ideas, but when we allow the scriptures truly to speak for themselves within their proper context, we see that not all divorce is the result of hard-hearted individuals, or not all people who do divorce are hard-hearted. Well, and I think we need to make an important distinction here as well, because everything you just said, I, th I think, is, is right on the mark. 
But whenever we talk about Joseph, you know, in the last episode, we talked about how Joseph was going to utilize the Hillel divorce to divorce Mary so as not to make a spectacle of her. So someone might say, well, how in the world can you say that Joseph is a just man whenever Jesus condemns the Hillel divorce? And the reason is, is because Joseph had a reason in his mind until the angel stopped him. Joseph had a reason to divorce Mary. I mean, if your woman all of a sudden is with child and you ain't been with her, there's really only one conclusion you're going to come to. I mean, she's been with someone else, apparently. Yeah, that wasn't the case in, in this perspective. But in Joseph's mind, she's committed adultery. She has committed adultery. Joseph had legal scriptural grounds under the Hebrew law to divorce Mary. But he was going to use the Hillelite divorce. Joseph wasn't considered a just man because he was going to use the Hillelite divorce, but because he loved Mary, he didn't want to make a public spectacle of her, and he had in his mind a just reason to divorce her. And Lee, does this not go back to what we talk about all the time on this podcast, which is the intent of the law, the heart of the law. God's not concerned with what was on the divorce certificate. In fact, it was more just for Joseph to go to a Hillel court because it wasn't going to shame and ruin Mary's reputation had he actually divorced her because he thought she had committed adultery during that time. And so the idea, and that's why it's so important for us to understand, and by the way, uh, I can just hear people say, well, actually it would have been fornication, not adultery, because they were betrothed and not married, and the word pornea is used, and we're going to get into all the the words too later on. But either way, the point is, is that he had a just reason. God had a just reason uh, for doing what he did. Exodus 21 actually was the the reason for the man to be able to allow his wife to go and remarry someone else is if he couldn't provide for his rights. Those were just reasons. That was actually protecting. In that case, divorce was necessary in order to show mercy, in order to, to once again protect the woman from her former hard-hearted husband. And so when we take all those things into consideration, we see Jesus is not giving this overall discourse on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He is answering their question by saying, you are wrong. You have been using the law to justify your sin. You're wrong. You're hard-hearted. And the reason why this divorce certificate was even given to begin with was not permission to divorce, but protection against your wives who you would divorce because you're so hard-hearted and you're not keeping your covenant. But here is something that when I studied in Matthew 5.32, this really, really opened my eyes. In Matthew 5.32, Jesus said, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. In the Greek, this is actually an action done to her. So she is made the victim of adultery. Some, some of our brethren have said, well, this just means if she ever does remarry in the future, she would be guilty of adultery, or it's going to look like she, she committed adultery, which is funny to me because these same brethren are the very ones who want to take a straight-line approach to everything else Jesus said, but in Matthew 5.32, they're going to try to qualify the mess out of it because this is a woman who who has had an action committed against her called adultery before anybody has remarried. Now think about how powerful yeah. this is. No remarriage here. No remarriage. This woman at this time, at this time, ha- has been sinned against, and that sin is called adultery, not because the man has already remarried, but because he has divorced her. That is what is considered adultery. And by the way... If you look at Ezekiel 16:38, adultery could encompass the idea of covenant breaking. 
And in Ezekiel 1638 in the Septuagint, this is the same word Jesus uses for adultery in his marital teachings in Ezekiel 1638. Do you know what it means? Breaking wedlock. The word for adultery in Ezekiel 13:8, same word in the Septuagint that it Jesus uses, it means to break wedlock. So this is not an action that may occur in the future. But this is a present reality that takes place when the man treacherously divorces his wife. And we talked about that in Malachi 2.16. That is when you when you have no lawful grounds and you are divorcing your wife, that is something that is considered adultery even before you remarry, according to Matthew chapter 5. Now, I want to while 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 I'm on this, I want to continue one more thing and then we'll kind of discuss it a little bit. But his adultery against her is the result of him unlawfully ending their marriage. So this is a sin her husband committed against her, not a sin she committed. Now, it's interesting because if you ever read Matthew 5, 31 through 32, it would seem from the straightforward reading that the only person innocent is actually the man who, who divorced his wife unlawfully. That, would, that appears to be the only man who would be innocent. That's why you can't take a straightforward approach to reading Scripture. Clearly, Jesus is not saying everybody is guilty in this except for the man who did the unlawful divorcing. The only person guilty in this particular segment, uh, there's other people guilty, but in this particular segment, at that time, is the man who divorced his wife unlawfully because he committed an adulterous action against her. She became the victim at that moment of his adultery because he broke their covenant and he had no reason. There was no unlawful reason to end that covenant. It was treacherous. But here's where people really ask the question. Well, Kevin, doesn't it go on to say, though, in Matthew 5.38, that if this woman continues then she is is she not guilty for remarrying and we're going to get there in a moment because that's actually not in the context the same woman but before we do i just want to make a couple of more points because in matthew 5:32a jesus taught that the man's adultery against her took place when the man unlawfully divorced her in other words giving her a divorce certificate no longer justified his covenant breaking and she is the victim of his sin. She is not the sinner. She is the victim of his sin. And so that's the context. Jesus is saying, look, you guys have been justifying your hard-hearted divorce simply because you say, I have a divorce certificate to back my actions. I'm telling you that was never right. Hillel's wrong. I've got book, chapter, and verse to prove it. You're hard-hearted, and the law was put there for hard-hearted individuals, and that's exactly who you are. You are divorcing your spouse for no other reason. Are, are no lawful reason at all. And you're wanting to just find a way to justify it, and you have been justifying it simply through a divorce certificate. That's not right. It's not right now, and it never has been right. And I think one of the reasons why people miss that has to do with translations and how translations are often presented. Because within the churches of Christ, I mean, I don't know how it is in you know the mainstream or mainline churches, but I know amongst the One Cup Brethren and the One Cup Brotherhood, we tend to value the New King James Version. That's usually what our pulpit Bibles are, is New King James. That's the one that I tend to teach out of whenever I teach, just because that's the predominant translation that exists within the churches, at least within the circuit that I'm on. And in the New King James Version, let me pull this up real quick. The way that Matthew 5 and 32a reads 
if you just take, like you said, a straightforward reading, it can lead you to a different conclusion. It says, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever, and then, then we get into B. So to me, the position that people take about that, it makes sense. It makes sense why they arrive at that conclusion, because the translation they read, if you get straightforward with it, it makes sense. But if you get into the Greek and you look at the, because I think you read that, was that the NIV or the ESV? Yeah, that was that? the NIV. Yeah, that was the NIV. And, and Oh, well, we, we can't take anything that NIV says, man. Yeah, discredit is, it. The non-inspired version. Yeah, that's the non- <laughs> That's the devil's translation of the Bible. No, the NIV is a good translation. I mean, there's no perfect translation that's out there. Well, and no, and by the way, nobody denies that that's in the Greek. It it literally is an action done to the woman. No, so that's 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 not uh, that I'm aware of. That and we are going to bring up points where people clearly do disagree, and we'll point you to those resources so you can check them out yourself. But to my knowledge, nobody disagrees that if you look at the original language, that many of the translations make it sound like the man is innocent. But the woman is guilty, even though the woman didn't do anything. The man's the one who did something. So that's why straightforward reading is dangerous. Because if you read that, the woman who the man divorced for uh, for no reason is is the one who is considered Righteous wrong. In this case. Yeah, yeah, the man the man's good and the woman's wrong when the man's the one who sinned and the woman was sinned against. So we know that that can't be correct just from a purely uh, biblical. If you have any kind of biblical knowledge, you know that Jesus wouldn't be condemning the innocent and justifying the, uh, or con- yeah, condemning the innocent and justifying the those who are wrong. So that well, that. Oh, go, go ahead, dude. I'm sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say that's why it's so important to to understand that the first group of people, which by the way, I don't know anybody who would disagree with me on that. That those who are looking to just find a way to divorce for whatever reason. I don't know of anybody who's in favor of that. Like, I don't know anybody. If, you, if, you, if you're married and you're just like, look, I, I just, I have, for whatever reason, I just want to divorce my spouse. Is that okay? And so this is why this, this is so powerful. When someone divorces their spouse unlawfully, then they have sinned already against their spouse, even if they do not remarry. Even if they do yeah. not remarry, adultery has already been committed and their spouse is the one who is considered the innocent victim because it, because they divorced their spouse unlawfully, the adultery was committed against them. Yeah, and that's the point that I'm making is is that we miss that whenever we just take certain translations and we read that. In the Greek, this is an action that the man commits against his wife. He divorces her without cause. And that context falls in line with the rest of Jesus's antithetical statements with the antitheses that he utilizes in his Sermon on the Mount. If you have hatred in your heart, you've already committed murder. If you have less in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you divorce your wife for any cause, you're committing adultery against her. You know, it doesn't require adultery to have taken place beforehand. This is something you're doing to her now. And that falls in line with the contextual basis of what Jesus taught. It falls in line with the Greek grammatical structures in the, you know, in the most original documents that we have. And in this, we see that the, the non-inspired version, (laughs) the NIV actually renders this passage in a more accurate light than what the King James or the new King James version renders it. And whenever you take all of that together, you see that the guilty person here is the person who has hard-heartedly divorced his wife. He has put her away for no reason. 
so that he can marry another. And that's what we're about to get into with the second group that yeah. Jesus condemns here. Yeah, so the first group, probably no, not much debate over that. I doubt anything we just said uh, many people would disagree with. So if you hard-heartedly divorce your spouse, if you have no lawful or justifiable reasonable or reason, then yeah, you're wrong. Jesus is teaching against that. That's sin. That is uh, adultery. That is something that is contrary to the Word of God. It never was right, and it wasn't right in the first century, and it's still not right today. But the second group Jesus condemns, or at least teaches against. I want to use the word condemn. I don't, I'm careful with how I use that word. The third, the second group that that Jesus is teaching against their actions. I guess I'll put it that way. Is the third complicit party who would have been the beneficiary of the divorce. In other words, the new woman who the man was leaving his wife for. The home wrecker. I like to call it the home wrecker. In other words, it's not enough just to say it's wrong for you to be divorcing your spouse, but the reason why most people during that time were divorcing their spouse, there was an underlying reason. They had someone else they were going to marry, and therefore they had to get rid of who they were currently married to. They, they didn't want another wife. By the way, polygamy at that time was almost non-existent anyway, and they certainly, even if it wasn't existent, they didn't want to fool with a, 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 a two wives because that meant they had to take care of, of, of someone they didn't even want, kind of like a Leah and Rachel, Rachel situation. So, <laughs> so what, what, what do they do? I'm going to divorce in order to marry this other woman. Well, guess what? That woman would be a complicit party, and she too would have been just as wrong. Why? Because she was the beneficiary of that divorce. Had she refused to marry that man, then that man may have never left his wife. If that relationship would have never been formed, then that man may have never divorced his spouse. Now, he may have found somebody else, and if so, then that third party would have been equally guilty. But the point is, is this. This is the same situation we have in Malachi's time. Nothing different. Unlawfully divorcing your spouse in order to marry someone else. The third party is mentioned in the and who marries another because they were the beneficiary. Jesus never allows the guilty to escape his teaching, right? It's like, hey, I got it, I got I got a little part of this. Huh? No, 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 you didn't. You're just as wrong. Why? Because you're the beneficiary. You're you're involved in the breaking up of a marriage. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute, Kevin. I don't know if you can say that's actually what that says. I don't, I don't know if you can actually argue that. What are your reasons in believing that's what Jesus is teaching? Well, let me give you some reasons why. Number one, that's what happened in Malachi's time, and that's the divorcing that God hates. So the idea that they were divorcing in order to marry another, the sin took place when they divorced their spouse, but it was also the sinful process that continued to the person whom they left their spouse for. So what Jesus was saying is, whether you remarry or not, you've already committed adultery against your spouse because you broke your covenant. But because this is such a common practice of you divorcing in order to marry someone else, whoever you're leaving your spouse for, they too are complicit in this divorce, and thus they also are guilty of adultery. Now, Dr. Alan Ross, he quotes this, and then we talked about from, from last week, how this action was really inseparably bound together as a sin. In other words, the condemnation of this action. It was the whole process that took place. Yes, you committed adultery when you divorced before you even remarried because you committed adultery by breaking your covenant. But then 
not only did you already co- uh, commit adultery, but in order for you to enter into that new marriage, this was a process that had to take place. And so now the third party is just as wrong. And I know right now I'm repeating myself a lot, and I'm doing that purposefully because we've got to understand who Jesus is talking about here. And I want to get into Greek a little bit. I don't want to throw you off too much, but Professor William Luck, he explains it this way. He says that the clause in the phrase, and marries another, the 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 and, okay, the word that's translated and, the chi clause is sometimes what people call it. So the chi clause, this idea of whoever does this and marries another, it actually oftentimes functions as a purpose clause. And it expands the condemnation to not just the person who unlawfully divorced their spouse, but to the to include the person they left their spouse for. Now, how do I know that? Well, there's many examples of how the chi clause in Greek can include the purpose of the action. We see this in Matthew chapter four, verse eight. Jesus took uh, or Satan took Jesus up on a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. That's purpose. The reason he took them up on the high mountain is to show him. Matthew 4, 11, angels came and ministered to him. Their purpose was so that they could minister. That's why they came. Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I'll make you fisher, fishers of men. Why are you following Jesus? So that he can make you fishers of men. Matthew 4, 23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Well, why was he teaching in their synagogues? In order to proclaim the kingdom of God. Matthew 540, if anyone should sue you and take your cloak. In other words, if someone should sue you in order to take your cloak. So we see that the, the, the motivation for this question And it wasn't just in the scribes and Pharisees, because it's also in the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, because this was such a common practice, is divorce your spouse for any reason, take her to the Hillel court. You don't have a a lawful reason. You certainly don't have a moral reason, but you have another woman you want to go to. Divorce that woman, then go into the woman you actually want to be with, who chances are you're probably already eyeing. So you're, you're already probably having some sort of relationship with. In fact, even Tertullian said this, who was early church father in Luke 16, 18, he's, when he's commenting on this verse, he said, Jesus taught that whoever puts away, that is, for the reason wherefore a woman ought not to be dismissed, that another wife may be obtained. And that's in Against Marcion, uh, Book 4, Chapter 34. And he lived during uh, the second century. So here we see also that this was a, the common, a common understanding of how Jesus was teaching. The uh, the sense of the conjunction and is used here, and we also have David Biven and Brad Young that explain this in great detail. And he even says, through different means, this shows that the conjunction was intended to express purpose within this context. Biven actually said the, the Hebrew conjunction, whose sense may lie behind the Greek, uh, the, the word and, possesses a wider range of meaning includes purpose. Thus, here and in other sayings in the gospel, we witness this Hebraic influence upon the Greek text. So what is Jesus actually saying and who is he actually condemning the actions? What actions is he condemning? He's saying, if you're the one who's unlawfully divorcing your spouse, you're wrong. If you are the one who is the beneficiary of the person who divorced their spouse so they could come to you, you too are equally wrong and you're both guilty of adultery. Divorce certificate or not, you have both sinned and you are no longer, uh, you can no longer allow this Hillel understanding of the law to be that your means of justification, your, of justifying your hard hearts. Well, in this, they're keeping the letter of the law 
because Moses demanded a divorce certificate. This, this goes back to that concept of the intent of the law and the letter of the law. This was never the intention for how the law of Moses should function as it relates to interpersonal relationships, as it relates to re the relationship of marriage, marriage, divorce, remarriage. This was never intended to be the functional quality in how the law was to be executed. The purpose was to protect the woman as we have enumerated over and over and over again. The purpose was to provide a way out of a negligent or abusive marriage or a marriage in which adultery had taken place. But in keeping the letter of the law, as it was interpreted by Hillel, they could provide a divorce certificate and they were free to go. Jesus said, no, you have violated the intent of the law. You have committed adultery. You, you've committed functional adultery here. You who are divorcing your spouse, you're committing adultery. Against, you're sinning against your spouse. You're committing adultery against them. And you homewrecker over here who's you know waiting in the wings, you're just as guilty as they are. And this falls perfectly in line contextually with the other statements Jesus makes about hatred being akin to murder, with lust being akin to adultery. He's speaking of the heart of the law, the intent of the law, the purpose behind it, and how in violating that, they had actually violated the law. Even though they may have kept the letter of the law, they were still lawbreakers in this instance. That's such a good point you bring up because this is what legalism is by definition. Legalism is when you not only are trying to be saved by the law, but one of the results of legalism is justifying your sinful actions through the law. And it's interesting because they had this divorce certificate thinking that they freed them from sin, that I didn't sin because I have this divorce certificate. And Jesus said, look, that divorce should have never happened. That Just because you have a divorce certificate, that did not justify your action. That did not make you okay in what you did. Your heart, your intent, everything about this was sinful. Everything about this is treacherous. Everything about this I hate as far as the process. It is the process. And so the, the way that I like to summarize this is that Jesus is speaking of a very specific yet very common practice during this time, which is unlawfully divorcing your spouse because you have someone else you are leaving them for. And that makes things very clear when we look at the totality of the law, because guess what? None of the guilty are being let off the hook in this scenario. None of the guilty are. I, you know, the woman could be like, hey, I didn't have anything to do with this. You know, that he's already got his divorce certificate or, or well, he wouldn't even at that point still had to. But hey, he gave his divorce certificate to his wife and I'm fine. I don't I, I love this man. I don't know what the deal is. The deal is that man should have still been married to his first wife. And because of you and your new marriage, there was a process that took place that was adulterous and he's wrong and you're wrong and you're both wrong and you both think you were okay because you had a piece of paper saying that you were okay and that piece of paper was never designed to give justification to unlawful divorce. It was to give protection to unlawful divorce for the woman. And so here is where, well, do you have anything else to say that before we move on? Because I know we got a lot to cover. Oh, yeah. Well, I just want to briefly touch on this idea that they believe that the divorce certificate justified them. I mean, you see that in the parallel, well, not the parallel passage, but the other passage in Matthew where this is discussed whenever in Matthew 19, where they're discussing this and Jesus goes back to the beginning and declares, nah, you shouldn't be breaking up your marriages like this. And they say, well, Moses commanded us to give a divorce certificate. It's like they're justifying their actions in that path. Well, look, we were giving them the divorce certificate. Moses commanded it and we're doing it. And Jesus is like, no, Moses allowed you to divorce. 
but it wasn't always that way. You violated the intent of this. So, I mean, we even see them attempting to justify the letter of the law whenever they're called out on the carpet for violating the, the intent of the law. So we even see that there. But I mean, if we move along, though, there's, you know, we got into the Greek and I'm glad that you did, because one of the most common arguments that I have heard about this idea of adultery, and this gets into how one repents of that. And we're going to get to that at the end of this episode. But the idea is this idea about this are you, being are, a continuous statement. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, let, hold off on that one, one moment, because I, 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 I want us to get there. But I want to say something that is sometimes brought up as an objection to what, what, what I just said. Oh, before, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get after it, dude. Yeah, Go ahead. Be- before we get there. So here, here is where everything I just said makes perfect sense to most people. The problem is, is that when they read the Bible, they say, but that doesn't, that doesn't really sound what, like what Kevin just said. And so the reason why, and here's why. So I want to, I want to talk about this very specifically. So the condemnation was not just for the man who would unlawfully divorce his spouse to marry, marry another woman, but it was also for the woman who would unlawfully divorce her husband in order to marry someone else. And we see that in Mark chapter 10, verse 12, because keep in mind, we are in a transitional period where women were able to divorce their spouses um, or yeah, women were able to divorce their husbands. And at under Jewish law, that wasn't allowed. But as we talked about, I think what that was two episodes ago, we talked about Herodias and, and, and uh, we talked about um, Sal- uh, Salome and we dealt with how they were, we're, we're starting to use those courts to do that, which obviously after Jewish law, after AD 70, everything was destroyed anyway. And so both a man and a woman could go to court and divorce their spouse. So Jesus was not just saying that the man was guilty, but Jesus was also in Mark chapter 10, verse 12. He said that the woman was also guilty if she divorced her husband without just cause. So she was she was just as wrong. So whether it's a man who does this, whether it's a woman who does it, you're still guilty of adultery. You're still wrong. So this isn't just God saying the man is wrong. No, no, the woman would be wrong too. But here's where, and that's in Mark chapter 10, verse 12. Now, I believe that Mark chapter 10, verse 12 is an explanation of Matthew 5, 32, when it says, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, why is that important to look at that statement and analyze it? Here's why. If you just read that straight up, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That sounds like Jesus is saying any woman who has ever been divorced, if she ever remarries, she commits adultery. And if any man ever marries her, then she commits adultery too. Now, just like when Jesus said, cut off your right hand, it sounds like Jesus is saying, cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin. The question is, What does Jesus mean when he says whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery? Well, if you're John Piper, you believe that Jesus means this unqualified. Jesus means what he says. I disagree. I believe Jesus means what he means, and I don't believe Jesus means that every single divorced woman who ever has has been divorced, if she ever remarries, commits adultery. And neither do I believe every man who has ever married a woman who's been divorced commits adultery. I believe that this is a qualified statement. And I believe Mark chapter 10 is what qualifies it. So let me explain why. When people read Matthew 5, 31 through 32, they read it as a continuous statement. They assume this is the same woman who was just unlawfully divorced by her husband. But grammatically, such is not the case. 
In Matthew 5, 32b, when it talks about this woman, it's a completely different statement than Matthew 5, 31a. And I'll get a little geeky here in the Greek. But in Greek, the participle is indefinite when speaking of the woman. This means this woman should not be automatically understood to be the same woman who was just divorced by her husband in the previous verse. These are two separate law legislative statements. And so what we see is Jesus is now just talking about whoever marries a woman who has been divorced. What woman? Every woman who's been divorced? The woman who's just been divorced? Or is there a specific woman Jesus is talking about here? Well, in the Greek, this woman could actually be understood as being seen in what is called the middle reflexive intensive, which could imply the woman's unlawful initiation of the divorce. But you don't need the Greek to make this argument, because if we are looking at all of the text in which Jesus spoke, we see that Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 12, is talking about a woman who would divorce her husband unlawfully. So whoever marries the woman who divorced her husband unlawfully is guilty of adultery. And the reason why that makes sense is not only because of the the, the Greek language allows for such an understanding. By the way, the Greek language does not un, does not demand what I just said. So I'm not arguing that because of the Greek, this is what it must mean. I'm saying that because of the Greek, this woman does not have to be every woman. It could be understood contextually, and I believe it, it is, based upon Mark chapter 10, verse 12. So I believe what Jesus is saying is, whoever marries the woman who divorced her husband He's just as guilty because now he's the male homewrecker, whereas the female homewrecker is just as wrong when the woman or when the male divorces his wife to go to the third party. They're wrong. If a woman unlawfully divorces her husband and remarries, then guess what? He's just as wrong, too, because he was the complicit beneficiary of her unlawful divorce. That is a lot, and I hope I did not just confuse the mess out of anybody out there. Well. I think I followed that. And if I did, it seems to make sense. So if we can summarize what you just said, what you're essentially getting at is this idea. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32, you see Jesus say, whoever divorces his wife causes, whoever divorces his wife sins against his wife and he commits adultery against his wife. And whenever he says in the second part of that passage, whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery, that's the uh, New King James Version. Whenever he says that, we see that elaborated upon, and that is the reference to Mark 10, where he speaks of a woman who unlawfully divorces her husband. So you see the inverse. Basically, in Matthew 5 and 32, Jesus is saying, any man who divorces his wife for any cause commits adultery against her. Any woman who or whoever marries a woman who does what that man did is committing adultery themselves. It's the male homewrecker, the female homewrecker. That's essentially what you're getting at, right? That's correct. <clears throat> when you look at the when you look at all of the gospel account passages that talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, you see a full picture. You see a picture that says whether you're a male or whether you're a female in the marriage, and you're the one who initiates the unlawful divorce, you committed adultery. Whether you're the male, whether you're the female, who is the complicit beneficiary of that unlawful divorce, you've committed adultery. And I don't want to get into this right now, but next week I'm going to explain why Jesus could not be saying 
the innocent woman who was hard-heartedly divorced by her husband could never marry another man. I'm going to explain to you why that is absolutely, absolutely nonsensical within the context in which it was written. So what I'm saying is that Mark 10, 12 explains Matthew 5, 32. And it tells us who that woman is. It's not just any woman. It's the woman who would divorce her husband just like the man divorced his wife. Both They both did it hard-heartedly. And what that would mean is, in all of these contexts, Jesus would be condemning the, uh, the, the guilty. He would be condemning the guilty in both of these contexts. And who is the guilty? The guilty would be the husband who divorces his wife in order to marry someone else. By the way, even if he doesn't divorce or marry someone else, he's still guilty. But in the context, the the implication would be he's got another woman on the side. So if you divorce your spouse, if you're a male and you divorce your spouse, then unlawfully, just for whatever reason you want, you've committed adultery. If you, if whoever that third party beneficiary woman is, she commits adultery too. The same is true. If you're the woman and you hard heartedly divorced your husband, then guess what? You committed adultery. Whoever the man is that you're going to to marry, you're guilty of adultery too. It sounds an awful lot like you're letting the Bible interpret the Bible, Kevin. It sounds a whole lot like that's what you're doing here with this exercise, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, I think we could summarize this. We see Jesus teaching against two different groups of people, and he's teaching against something that was taking place every day in that day and time. Jesus is asked, if we can we can just summarize and paraphrase, is it okay for us to divorce our spouse with no grounds when we find another woman we want to marry? No. Because it seems to be a marker. <laughs> and no, it isn't. Jesus says, no, it isn't. And if you do, both you and the woman you marry have sinned. And we can even flip that. No. And if you do, both you and the man you marry have sinned. If we take Mark and Matthew into account with one another, those who divorce without grounds, Jesus teaches are guilty of adultery, period. Absolutely true. But he also lays a charge against the homewrecker, whether it's a homewrecker of the male variety or the female variety. They are complicit in this. They are a guilty third party. They are benefiting from this treacherous divorce. The person who marries the one who treacherously divorced their spouse is guilty of adultery as well. And within that context, you see these in these individuals, these people are treacherously divorcing their spouses in order to marry others. That takes the that takes the intertextuality of Malachi into account. It takes the context of the ancient Near East and the first century and what we see taking place there into account. Those who were treacherously divorcing their spouses were just as much to blame for the breaking of the covenant because they're complicit. I mean, all of these people are breaking a covenant without cause. And Jesus likens that to adultery. Now, it's been 2,000 years that have passed from this context. There have been hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years of modern debates that have muddied the water here. And because of that, a lot of those debates are taking place within a modern contextual framework that haven't taken that ancient context into account because it wasn't until the last 100, 150 years that a lot of these documents and a lot of these materials have been discovered. The Jews in Jesus's day would have clearly understood what he was getting at. They would have clearly understood that he was teaching the law and he was enumerating and reorienting them back to the proper appropriation of the law. 
He was tearing apart the loopholes that they had created for themselves to allow them to hard-heartedly divorce their spouses. They were using the law as a weapon against their spouse in a way that it was never meant to be used. It was meant to be a protective mechanism for the woman, but they had weaponized it in a manner by which they could put their wife away. Well, she's put away. She can marry any man she wishes, so it's not my problem anymore. But it was a treacherous misapplication and misappropriation of the law. And I think anytime we deviate from the purpose of the law in keeping with the letter of the law, I think that we could even stand to say that we're guilty of the same thing that they were. We're being hard-hearted. We're looking for loopholes. We're trying to justify our actions and our beliefs in, in a way that's not in keeping with the nature of the law itself. It's not in keeping with the nature of God himself. And we see this with the disciples of Jesus after Jesus got done teaching on this because they themselves said, well, if this is the case, if we have to take marriage seriously, then what's even the point in marrying at all? Yeah, and, and it's and it's crazy to me that they have this perspective. It's all of a sudden now Jesus is saying, no, marriage is something you need to take seriously, and because of your hard hearts, divorce was allowed. No, we, this reorientation is something that surprised them. They were thinking, well, if it's not that easy to get out of it, then we should just keep from getting married you know, completely, whatsoever. And there's a couple of ways to look at the response of the disciples. I guess really there's several ways, but really two specific ways we could look at it. The one way is that the disciples' response could have actually been a typical overreaction. It wasn't uncommon, if you look at the gospel accounts, for the disciples to overreact when Jesus taught something. They sometimes didn't understand what he was teaching. They misunderstood. I mean, we see this in Matthew 16, 22, Matthew 19, 13 through 15, uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 25, tw chapter 26, 6 through 9, Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 40. We see this all throughout the gospel accounts when Jesus would teach something, and then all of a sudden the disciples would respond with some sort of exaggerated or misunderstood response. And so, it could be that this would have been such a shock to the disciples that Jesus was taking this position against Hillel. And it's important to know he wasn't taking a position against Jewish law because there were all sorts of different interpretations to Jewish law. And so they didn't look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you're teaching a new law. Jesus was teaching a prop, the proper law. He was teaching the proper understanding of the Jewish law not a new law, as we've already harped on earlier in this episode. So it could just be the case that this was a shock to the disciples, and their response could be showing their bitter attitude. In other words, they have this mindset, if I have to take the marriage seriously, then I might as well not marry at all. And so from this perspective, it could be that the disciples were actually bitter, and they were giving an overreacted response. I, I I like this example. I sometimes have used this example when talking about this passage. When I was young, my mom would take me to the movies, especially when they were those like free movies during the, the summertime once a week. I don't know if y'all ever had those or not growing up because, you know, you're so much older than I am, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ancient man. We had to we had to go in a horse and buggy to the to the picture show whenever <laughs> it was going on. Well, mom would always take me because, of course, dad would be be working, and uh, and and during that time, mom mom wasn't working, and so she would she would always take me and, and my sister to the movies. And I remember one particular time, she said, "Okay, you know, we're going to go to the movies, but you're not going to be able to get any candy. I'm not going to get you any candy and drinks." Well, typically, going to the movies meant I could get candy and drinks. It was like a, a package deal, and I remember just reacting to my mom saying, "Well, if that's the case." What's even the point of going to the movies at all? If I can't, if I can't get my, 
my raisinettes and my frozen Coke, then what's the point of going to the movies at all? <laughs> and so it was this typical overreaction. It wasn't that I didn't want to go to the movies. It was that I had expected that the movies came with certain rights and privileges that now I was being told if I went, I wouldn't be able to have that. And so it was exposing my bitter attitude. Well, the same is true as we've already seen with historically speaking, the school of Hillel, that fault was you could divorce for any reason. Well, Jesus is saying that that was never correct. God has always hated divorce that was treacherous, divorce that was that was unlawful, divorce that was without moral grounds. And now he is saying that those who do it are guilty of adultery. And by the way, what's interesting in a lot of our brethren, including myself, by the way, didn't get for a long time, is that Jesus was saying it had always been adultery. It had always yeah. been adultery. This isn't this isn't new. Jesus saying this has always been adulterous. This has always been wrong. I, I condemned it through Malachi, through the prophet Malachi and Malachi two sixteen. What what you're doing has always been wrong. And so their response is, well, wait a minute. We've been doing it for this way for so many years, and this is the way our families did it, and their families, and our parents and grandparents and ancestors. You're saying that now I've got to take marriage seriously. Well, if that's the case, I just won't marry at all. So it could be that the disciples' response was just a typical overreaction. Um, but there's also another possible response, and, I, and and what would that be, Lee? Well, it, it could also—I've also heard it argued that this response could be a demonstration of their maturity, that they realize that if you had to take so much time and effort to nurture and cultivate a marriage, that it would be— better not to marry at all so they could dedicate their time to the Lord without being distracted by marriage. And some people have alluded to what Paul says over in first Corinthians about, you know, those who are married are concerned about, you know, the things in the world and pleasing their husband, et cetera. You know, it's, it's kind of that idea, but the norm in their area, and I know, man, we've beaten this horse to death and we've brought it back to life just so we could kill it and beat it some more. The idea and the mentality in that era was that marriage was often entered into flippantly. Um, it wasn't the norm in that day and age to regard marriage as a holy thing in the sight of God, that it was a vow that you made in the sight of the Lord and that you needed to keep those vows. And so maybe they're seeing, wow, this, this seems like this is a lot of work. And if it's really this much work and it's this hard, and we have to devote that much time and attention to it, that could be a distraction from our earthly mission here. It could be a distraction from serving in this kingdom to come that, you know, our Lord, who this man whom we regard as the Messiah is coming to establish. And if that's the case, then it would probably be better if we didn't get married at all. And it seems to me that Jesus's response to that, it could go either way. It could be placating their... Um, bitterness or, or kind of, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It could be addressing their bitterness if this is a response that's born out of bitterness, or it could be a response to that maturity. I, I think it could go either way and it, it could bear out from either side of the argument because the way Jesus responds is really interesting because he doesn't say, oh, no, 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 it's not better if you don't marry. No, you need to get married. And that was the prevalent idea in that day and time. Another interpretation that a lot of the Jews had was is the idea in Genesis to go out and be fruitful and multiply was something that they had to observe. And David Instone Brewer gets into this in his book. A lot of Jews had this idea that to be fruitful and multiply meant that we have to get married and we need to have at least two children to multiply our number to replace me whenever I die, but also to increase and grow our number to multiply our number. 
And so a lot of them felt like that marriage was obligatory. They had to get married. And Jesus is saying, well, no, not really. And he says there in verse 12, there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept him, let him accept it. And whenever he says eunuch naturally, he's talking in a metaphorical term. He's he's referring to some who would literally be eunuchs, but when he says someone who have literally made themselves eunuchs, he's not talking about someone who has literally castrated themselves. That's what a eunuch was. He's saying that there are some people who are born without the ability to reproduce. Whenever he says eunuchs born from their mother's womb, there are some made eunuchs by men. We remember the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they were made eunuchs. They were castrated when they went into Babylonian captivity. Yeah, that's a fun time. But <laughs> yeah. whenever he says, yeah. But when he says that there are some who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, he's speaking about those who choose celibacy. He's talking about those who choose a single life to pursue those things that are above. And he says, he who's able to accept it, let him accept it. In other words, if that's your perspective, well, then that's your prerogative. If that's how you choose to live your life, well, then you're certainly able to. And I've heard some say- Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, dude. Well, Paul gets into this too, which we're not going to talk about Paul tonight, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about the idea of celibacy too, especially within the context where he was writing. And the idea is that when you're single, you can do more for the kingdom. And I love the way that, I can't think of who put it this way, but in in all the reading that I was doing, I remember someone put it this way. They said, when you look at what Jesus said, he didn't say that God requires anybody to become a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake, nor does he say that God requires that some may have to become eunuchs for their own soul's sake. What he says is that there are some who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. The reason why that's interesting is because this isn't something that Jesus, this isn't something that God, this isn't something that the law is laying upon anybody. This is a personal choice that uh, that someone is making, not so they can go to heaven, not for their own soul's sake, but to benefit the kingdom as a whole. That's a very important distinction to make, and I know where you're going with this, and the reason is, why is that an important distinction to make? What do some people do with this passage in here in, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 10 through 12? Well, it goes back to those presuppositions that we've talked about before. Whenever you hold to a certain position, you're going to look at scriptures through the lens of that position, and you're going to work to make the scriptures fit whatever that perspective is. And it's so hard to avoid that. It is so hard to leave those presuppositions behind. And I still find myself doing that from time to time. And it's hard to avoid. But whenever people come to this with this idea that divorce demands celibacy post-divorce unless adultery has been committed, people will use the disciples' response to what Jesus taught And Jesus' further discourse and his further answer to their response to indicate that he was teaching celibacy and singleness is required after divorce. And the context doesn't demand that's the case unless the presupposition is brought to this idea. Because like you said, he taught that it's a choice. He didn't teach that this is something that was compulsory. He didn't teach that in order to serve in the kingdom or in order to be pleasing unto God, you must remain celibate if you have an unlawful divorce. Jesus isn't teaching that here. And in either case, we see that the disciples' response doesn't warrant or guarantee that conclusion either. 
Yeah, because the context is not about remarriage, it's about marriage. They didn't say, well, if such is the case uh, with a man and his wife, it's better for a man to never remarry. They said, if such is the case, it's better to never marry at all. And so when you look at the context, the disciples, were, they were not re referring to remarriage. They were talking about marriage in and of itself, that it's just better to never get married at all. And Jesus says, not all can accept this. So he doesn't respond by saying, yes, you're correct, it is better. Nor does he say, yes, you're right, some people have to in order to go to heaven. He says, first of all, well, no, not everybody can accept that. But yeah, you're right, there are some people and they're going to remain single the rest of their life. And if, they're, if that's something that they desire to do for the kingdom's sake, they can. But Jesus doesn't say, yes, you're right, they have to remain unmarried the rest of their life or they can never get remarried. Jesus never taught that some must remain single for their own soul's sake in order to go to heaven. On the contrary, he taught that some will choose to remain unmarried and never get married for the kingdom's sake so that they can purely focus on the kingdom without distraction. Because if you're going to get married, you have to take it seriously. If you're not going to take it seriously, don't get married. Exactly. And and really, I think Jesus's choice of word here, which I'd have to do some study into that word that's translated eunuch, that's someone who can't reproduce at all. This is someone who doesn't have the capacity, and if someone was made a eunuch, which means they've been castrated, then the hormones that are involved with, and this might get a little graphic for some people, but I mean, I taught anatomy and physiology for seven years. I've been in the healthcare profession for over 12, so this is something that for me is just, it's a foregone conclusion. It doesn't bother me to say this, but it may offend the sensibilities of some, but if a person, if a man has been castrated, He's not producing the hormones that give rise to a sex drive. So that's not even going to be in his mind to begin with. He's not becoming a eunuch after marriage. He was never able to enter into that and have, would have no desire to enter into that at all. So it's almost as if Jesus is using this in an idiomatic way to illustrate his point that there are some people who will never marry to begin with because they're either born without that desire or they are made that way to not have that desire by others, or they choose to not pursue that end for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And he says, this is a choice everyone can make. He's not teaching celibacy or required singleness after a divorce. So, I mean, it, it seems plain to me, but if you approach this through that presupposition, through that lens that Jesus requires celibacy after divorce because it's continuous adultery if you don't, which is what we're going to get into in, in one of our later episodes when we talk about what repentance looks like. You know, we intended to get into that tonight, but with the time, it's probably better just to make that its own standalone episode. So stay tuned, folks. That will come later. It is but coming. It, it seems 12 it is hours coming. later. 12 hours later. 12 hours of yeah, material later. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, we cannot be accused of, of being brief or leaving any stone unturned or anything else through this discussion because we really are trying to cover everything that we can in this. So yeah, every, every I mean, thought, everything that I've ever come up against, anything that's any thought I've even had in my own mind, anything that I've ever read, we're trying to cover and be just as exhaustive as possible. So let's let's just summarize here to, to really close out tonight's episode. We've yeah, been discussing we're, the we're over an yeah, we're over an hour into it. So this is as good a time as any to end. So how would you so, go about summarizing this? Well, so we've been discussing the guilty because people want to go to the marital teachings of Jesus to talk about 
who are the innocent? And that's really not the focal point of the teaching of Jesus. We are going to talk about who the innocent are, and we're going to talk about that in the next episode. But the point Jesus is making is he's saying, quit divorcing. Quit divorcing your spouses because of your hard hearts. But he's not talking about all divorce. He's talking about a specific type of divorce, which we know from Malachi is called treacherous divorce in the context of Malachi. Here it would be more or less hard-hearted divorce. And it's the idea of divorcing without any grounds. You don't have any moral grounds to do so. And Jesus really is focusing on the whole process. Those who divorce without moral grounds, they're guilty of adultery. But even if they don't remarry, they're still considered guilty of committing adultery against their spouse, as we saw from Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. But Jesus is talking about the whole process. So why would people divorce with no moral grounds? Well, in that context, they were divorcing so they could go to someone else. They were someone else that they had, and we we called them the homewrecker. In other words, there's a third party that the the man or the woman is divorcing their spouse for so that they can go and remarry someone else. Well, that person is just as guilty because they are a complicit party in the breaking up of that covenant, in the breaking of that marriage that had no moral grounds to be broken. And so Jesus is saying it's not enough just to say this one person is guilty of adultery, so is the beneficiary of this divorce. This whole process is sinful. This whole this whole process is, is wrong. It's unscriptural, it's unlawful, and yet you've been justifying it because you said you've had a certificate of divorce. So it's important to know that it's always been considered adulterous, always was wrong. It never was right. The command was not to divorce in Deuteronomy 24. The command was to give a certificate when you did divorce. And he said the reason why that was commanded is because they had hard hearts. So Jesus knew, and God knew, of course, that there would be men divorcing their spouse for just whatever reason they wanted to. And so that divorce certificate is what was commanded to protect the woman. And then finally, we see that the one who is divorced treacherously, we may call them the victim, they're actually not even in consideration in these contexts. So Jesus is not speaking exhaustively. He's not speaking universally. He's not speaking without qualifiers here. He's not speaking straightforward. He's speaking to the specific question. He's answering the specific question that was asked. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the standard practice of just justifying their hard-hearted divorce for any reason because they had a certificate and Jesus is teaching them that that's not correct. And so next week we'll get into more of the idea of the exception clause. What is the exception clause? Is it even valid or was it a, was it something that was added later? Uh, if it is valid, what exactly does it mean? And why is the word pornea, which is the word translated for fornication used instead of the common word for adultery? And how are we to understand that? And furthermore, is there only one exception? When Jesus gave this exception, is this the only one? Uh, and that's even assuming that this is supposed to be an exception. And so we're going to deal with all that. But the point of today's lesson is to show who the guilty are. So the guilty are those who are divorcing without moral grounds, divorcing unlawfully. And there may be some listening to this say, well, Kevin, I don't think there are any grounds that are considered moral grounds. And we're going to talk about that more next week. Suffice it to say, I disagree with that because God divorced, Hosea divorced, Joseph div divorced. Exodus 21 verses uh, 7 through 11 teaches that divorce is the more merciful action if you could not provide for your spouse. So none of those things are considered hard-hearted in those contexts. So I don't believe it's all divorce, of course, but 
Either way, anyone who is divorcing without moral grounds is considered committed, that they are considered uh, in sin in that action they committed. It's considered adultery. And that whole process of divorcing in order to marry someone else, that third beneficiary party, they too are considered guilty of adultery. And they always were. This is something that is nothing new. Jesus is saying whether you have a divorce certificate or not, the action that, you, that, that you're committing, this whole process is sinful and it's wrong. Yeah, and, and I think that's an excellent summary. And without getting too much into it, the, just that idea, to me, one of the biggest takeaways that we can take away from this is that Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5 where he says, and whoever commits her who is divorced commits adultery. He's not referring to the one divorced on. He's not referring to the victim, which is something we'll elucidate more when we talk about the innocent party and the exception and all that good stuff. But in any case, I think this has been a really good discussion. I mean, do we have anything else that we want to add as we bring this to a close? I think that at least does it for tonight. Until next time. Until next time. Once again, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for listening. Our audience is growing all the time. It's it's pretty incredible just to see the interest that this conversation has generated. We thank all of you for listening, for listening patiently as Kevin and I both are gregarious individuals and verbose, and we both love to talk. So thank you all. We appreciate it tremendously. Um, like our podcast, um, rate our podcast, give it a five-star rating, share us on Facebook, share us on social media through whatever platform you choose to use. We are now on Spotify. So listen to us on Spotify. If you use Spotify, um, share the links, tell people about us. And we very much look forward to receiving your questions. We haven't received very many questions so far for our final Q&A episode, which might be a good thing. It might mean that we're covering all of this in really good detail and you don't have any questions, but we would love for you to send questions, hypotheticals, whatever you would like to send. We'd love to see it. We'd love to hear it. We'd love to hear from you all. So follow us on Facebook, uh, join the page, like, share our podcast, do all those things. Thank you all so much and God bless.